What happened in your week? Anything eventful happened in your week? What happened that made you think more deeply this week? Made you think beyond what the eye could see or the ear could hear? Let me give you a, um, a series of vignettes or many stories about things that have happened in my week, just gone and uh, maybe one of them that happened a couple of weeks ago. You might not know, but the project's got a uh, wedding celebrant uh, ministry and the whole idea of that is that we uh, don't want the church to be known as just being against stuff all the time. We want to be for things, so we set up um, a wedding celebrants ministry, which you can, you can get to on the internet. We had some connections to some local wedding venues. And so we've been uh, running weddings uh, for people outside of the church. And part of what we do is offer them four sessions of uh, premarital counselling. Uh, because we just tell them, we, we want you to have a great wedding day, but we want you to have a, even more than that, a great marriage. And uh, so we, um, we're kind of connected with people that kind of pop up every now and then that want us to do weddings for them. And I've been communicating with a lady who wanted uh, us to do a wedding. And uh, the two people in the project who are licensed to do weddings are myself and Cole, Cole Patterson, one of the elders here, one of the leaders. And uh, I've been communicating with this lady and uh, we, um, in the end, she just said, look, oh, she goes, I'd really like to um, just get to know you guys before we kind of commit to this. You know, so I said, yeah, sure, uh, we'll uh, come over to your place. And so Thursday night, I arranged for us to go over to their place at 7.30. Uh, Thursday night, we arrived there about 25 past 7, Cole and I, and um, Cole just said, I think, maybe, let's just pray before we go. Yeah, cool, it's a good plan. So we prayed together. We went up and knocked on the door about 7.30, opened the door. Um, the, the lady opened the door, looked in, she's got tears in her eyes, um, her husband, well, husband-to-be is, is, looks a bit dumbfounded. Uh, and then they just tell us that five minutes ago they got a phone call telling them that his cousin had just committed suicide. And I just thought, what an amazing God moment that two pastoral guys show up five, five minutes after a phone call like that. Amazing God moment. We spent about an hour and a half with them and spent about 15 minutes talking about weddings. <laughs> But it's kind of the way that life happens, right? Stuff just kind of happens and you find yourself in the middle of it, in the middle of messiness, in the middle of something where you're looking to bring something about who God is and what he says to bear on a particular situation. And you know, at, at that point in time, and I, I appreciate what psychologists and counsellors do, you know, at the end of the day, the, when you're on your deathbed and you're thinking about the people that helped you in life, it's not a psychologist or a counsellor. It's usually family or friends or people who kind of showed up at those kind of moments where something big was kind of going down and helped to carry you through it. Vignette number two. On Friday, I went down to Brisbane as part of my ongoing professional development to stay registered as a counsellor. I went to a conference called Generation Next, which is really a conference about all the trouble going on with children and youth. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's a way that I can get my APD points that I need to get. I actually find it's probably the best one out there. Uh, it's a big conference. There's probably 600 people down there on Friday. Uh, and as I was sitting there, I'm just going, I'm, I'm noticing a pattern at these conferences. The way these conferences work is they basically tell you a bunch of stuff that scares the heck out of you if you work uh, with young people, either as an adult, a parent, a, uh, or, or a professional. And so they just give you stat after stat after stat about all the bad stuff that's going on and uh, talk about how much they care about stuff, and they do. They do genuinely care. Let me give you some stats. The first session was on teens and mental health. At least one in seven adolescents will have a mental illness in any 12-month period. 25% of all people that will ever have depression have had their first episode prior to 18. 50% of all people who will have a mental illness have their first episode before 18. 7.5% of 12 to 17 year olds have serious thoughts of suicide each year. That was the first talk. And then a whole bunch of other stuff in there. The second talk was about anxiety disorders in young people. Then a guy got up and he talked about gamblification in gaming. Talked about all, this, all the tricks and tactics used by... Uh, companies to financially exploit kids with mobile phone games. He uh, quoted that the average yearly spend of a player in the game of war mobile game, does anyone know the game I'm talking about? The average yearly spend is $550. So this is like you play a game on your mobile phone 
or kids play a game on an iPad or a tablet and it says, get a power up for this much money. And so basically his point was what the uh, gaming companies are doing is gamblifying young people. That's what they're doing. The, um, some of you may be aware of the Game of War, Kate Upton advertising campaign. They spent $40 million on that advertising campaign. Then a uh, lady gets up and started talking about how girls are being dismantled. And it was one of those talks, I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation like this, but I've been in this situation heaps and heaps and heaps. And um, you have someone stands up the front and says how bad it is that girls are being sexualised, and I agree. And then they put up all these images for the next half an hour of that exact thing. And it's like, give me two or three and I'll get your point. But then they just keep going and going. And, and it almost, in my view, gets to the point where you're propagating this right now. Because a third of the people in this room are male and you just keep putting all these pictures up. So can you just stop? I get what you're saying, just stop. She talked about cosmetic surgery and how extreme that's going and I can't even give you details on this stuff. I was reading it this morning and I was just, just reviewing it and I was just going, oh man, I can't even tell you half the stuff that's going on. It's not appropriate to talk about in church. Uh, she talked about violence towards women, the sexual landscape and what that's like. Then a um, person got up and they talked about the connection between media violence and domestic violence. Guy got up from uh, eSafety, the government kind of group, talked about how kids are being bullied and targeted online. See, I find the Generation Next conference very depressing. Uh, and the reason why I find it really depressing is because they are super good. The experts that they get there are really, really good at cashing out the problem. They're really good at cashing out what it, the effect that it has on kids. They're really caring and loving toward kids. But then their problems that are so big and scary and are great big gnarly monsters, they come to the solutions for them and it's like a mouse holding a Nerf gun. Do you get what I'm saying? Like it's this big gnarly monster and they get to this mouse with a Nerf gun at the end of it, like learn breathing techniques, which I'm sure happens sometimes, right? And they actually work sometimes, but it's like, really? Like that's what you're throwing at this thing? You've got this big gnarly monster that's going on and you're teaching people how to breathe? And so my point is not that they're not helpful, but they're just thin. I'm not saying that they do a bad thing. I'm saying that they just do a shallow thing. That's what I'm saying. And it's depressing to me. You probably don't even know. I don't think I've talked about it publicly, but the Restoring True Humanity tract that we got printed this year and published was written at last year's Generation Next conference. All right? Because I sat there and I just thought, this is driving me nuts. And this is terrible. Everything that's going on is terrible and then there's nothing that we can really throw at it that's even going to touch it. It's just going to bounce off it. Two weeks ago, I got a haircut. Thanks. I appreciate it. I think it looks good too. <laughs> and I was talking to this lady and I'd just been on a bit of a retreat time. I spent a bunch of time um, hanging out with God and, and reading the Word and, and, and praying. And anyway, I'm just sitting there and then some of you know, he's just like, don't ever say that to Peter, right? But um, she just said, you know, I... I asked her a weekend, and she goes, oh, it was really bad. And she started talking about some stuff that happened on the weekend. And then she started talking about these uh, panic attacks that she has. And I'm just going, oh, that's interesting. Like, we could just keep talking about that. And so we started talking about anxiety in this, uh, in this hairdresser. And there was no one else getting their hair cut. It was just myself and the two hairdressers in there. And the other one looked like she wasn't listening. And then I started talking about how anxiety and fears are kind of rational but irrational at the same time. Because at the end of the day, you could have a fear of flying and at one level it's rational because planes do drop out of the air and kill people. Sorry if you have a fear of, of flying. <laughs> but that don't happen every time a plane goes up, right? So you can kind of spin into an irrational kind of fear even though it's linked to something that actually is rational. So I just threw that in there and then, boom, the other hairdresser was in then because she was just about to fly over to Ireland <laughs> with the kids. So she's talking, we're having this big conversation about anxiety. And you know what, in the end, you know, I, she talked, to, the, my hairdresser talked about the techniques that they gave that she'd got from people to actually help with the anxiety and said it didn't really help that much. And I said, yeah, you know why? I said, because you need something bigger than the thing that you fear. That's why. I said, this might sound weird to you, but I believe in Jesus. I think he's real and that he's big and that he's bigger than any other fear that you have. And... Um, she goes, no, I don't think that's weird at all. So then we're having this spiritual conversation. 
at the hairdresser and the other hairdresser's involved and that's why my hair's so short. <laughs> All right? She goes, is that twice? She goes, is that short enough? I said, no, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Just kind of get dropped in the middle of it, you know? And it's, it's life happening. I mean, people say, don't they, that they're not religious, but they'll have conversations like that, you know? And when people ask it, they say, what do you do? I just can't work in a church. Just tell them that. Thursday, I uh, went downtown. I thought I'd go to QBD at Grand Central. Went for a walk. Went looking for the self-help section. <laughs> Some of you are laughing already. There's no self-help section in, uh, in QBD anymore. There is motivation section, you know. And it's, uh, it's right next door to the religion section, which is kind of good, but I'd like to see religion push into the motivation thing. I think there's no better... Uh, motivation than Jesus and uh, him being the victor. Anyway, there was a few uh, books there. I took some photos of... Uh, that, those are the books in the motivation section. Uh, let me give you a few titles. I'm not making any of this up. This is You can go into QBD and I've even subtracted some of them that weren't appropriate for uh, this morning's audience. Here's one. You are not born to suffer. Number two, changing your thinking. Number three, get your together. The happiness trap. Radical self-love. I mean, we've been doing that one for thousands of years and it's still not working, but she wrote a book about it. You can heal your life. Overcoming anxiety for dummies. <laughs> Reboot your life. You know, you can stand there and, and you actually look at these books. And you know, sometimes you can go to Christian bookstores and it looks a bit similar. Have you ever noticed that? You kind of get there and you stand and you look and it's usually called the Christian living section but there's a whole bunch of books there that are just kind of baptised um, secular ideas. Like we'll just kind of baptise the thing and we'll sell it and now instead of you having to fix your own life God's going to help you to fix it and this is how you can get him to do what you want him to do. And it gets probably even a little bit worse because sometimes the church has actually become a portal for self-help. Has anyone ever noticed that? Like you go to church, like if your life's not working properly, what do you do? You actually, well, you go to church and you, you get all the help that you need at church so that your life can go the way that you want it to go. Rather than church being the place where a radically bold, detailed application of biblical truth happens. I mean, I don't have time to go into it, but Robert Shuler from the Crystal Cathedral back in the day, I'm sure it was Robert Shuler in the Crystal Cathedral. Anyway, Robert Shuler wrote this book called Liz the, uh, the New Reformation. Um, self-esteem, the New Reformation. And he redefines sin as anything that damages your self-esteem. And he's basically going, we need a new reformation. And all that really did is it took something that was a secular idea of the day and baptised it and sold it to the church. as truth. And I think the Bible does way better than that. He's with me on that one. So let's, uh, let's turn to the Bible. We're going to go to Ephesians 4. Verse 7 to 16. Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. If you haven't got a Bible, feel free to go and grab one from up the back. If you don't own one, take it home. That's their gift to you. I just suggest you get one that doesn't have yellowy edges to the pages. Here we go. Verse 7 of Ephesians 4. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Jesus, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Hang with the scripture there for a minute. Go back to verse 7. I want you to notice the structure here. Paul's saying this. If you love Jesus, everyone in God's family gets a gift. Go down to verse 11. The leaders of the church get special gifts. Why? To release the, uh, the gifts of all the members in God's family. Go down to verse 12 there. The point of uh, apostles, prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers having giftings is to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. When you hear ministry, just think service. Think about a table waiter. And the purpose of being equipped, if you look at verse 12 to 14 there, is to build up the body, the family of God, to be mature and so that the church would be like Jesus. And the way that it happens in verse 15 is people in the family speaking the truth to one another in love. Here's the first point this morning. I think God's given you an amazing task. This is way bigger than just having a happy life. God's given you a task to make sure that the people around you get rescued by him. That's an incredibly honourable task. God's called you to bring the heart-changing truths of the Bible to bear upon people's lives, people who aren't in the church and people who are in the church. You see, God hasn't just called you to be compassionate, uh, be willing to listen, uh, to be willing to carry someone's burden. He's called you to speak the truth of Scripture into someone's life so that God brings about change through it. I mean, it's an incredibly honourable task that you've been called to. You've been called to help people to walk closely with their Redeemer, their Rescuer, Jesus. And this is a spin-out, right? Because you are a central part of God's rescuing. Like, that's amazing, isn't it? Does anyone else feel that? So like, why would he, like, you guys are busted. So am I. We're all busted. It's like, yeah, God's going, here's my plan. I'm going to rescue people with a broken person. That's what I'm going to do. No one's perfect in this place here this morning. No one's finished. Everyone here needs change. Amen? Desperately. But God says, no, I'm going to grab these people and these people, my family are the ones that are going to bring each other to maturity. Who knows that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things? Who knows that's true? He does, right? And the lives of each other, big time. I mean, he does it in lots of different ways, but in the lives of each, each other. You know, Paul Tripp said that God uses people in need of change to help people in need of change. That's the gig. I mean, if you don't normally go to church and you think the church is a bunch of perfect people, well, this one's not, okay? It's just not, never has been, never will be until Jesus comes back and fixes everything up. And then his family will be done. They'll be finished. So just stop for a minute and have a look around. Look at someone else in the room. Can you do that? This is going to be weird. See, every single person in this room needs change. And God's vehicle of choice through which to do that is you. amazing yeah, part of the reason why it's amazing is because I know what I'm like <laughs> do you know what I'm saying you feel like that you just go I know what I'm like I know what my weaknesses are I know how pathetic I can be and God says no that's that's the plan just go, okay well can you just plan B what's any no there's no plan B that is plan A and that is that's it that's the only plan and he's always done it that way second thing ministry is an all play. I want you to know this, that ministry, uh, the word ministry originally was actually not a religious idea back in the day. In the first century, it was a table waiter. And people got this idea that the job of ministers or pastors in the church is to make sure everyone's okay and grow everyone to maturity. And I trust that you see from Ephesians 4 here, that's just not a, I don't think that's a biblical notion. Because Ephesians 4, I think, is really clear that the job of the leadership is to equip the church and it's the job of everyone in the church, including the leaders, to bring each other to maturity. What does that mean? It means you're called to ministry. Every one of you that loves Jesus is called to ministry. You're called to minister to other people so that they mature into the fullness of Christ. And God's gifted the leaders of the church to equip the people in the church so that all people will join in the job of personal transformation. So here's the thing. I used to work in this school. I worked here for about 18 years and for a bunch of years while I was working here, I used to say to other people and even to myself, 
Uh, I get lots of hours with students at the school here. So basically, kids are at school like six hours a day for five days a week, it's about 30 hours. So you just get lots of contact with, with students. And when I was thinking about uh, what it would be like to work in the church, I thought, okay, well, I'm probably going to meet up with people maybe for two hours a week. And then, I mean, the elders, the leaders of the church here talk about having good conversations on Sunday, and we all kind of think that you can probably have three good conversations on Sunday. And there's five of us, so that's 15 people. So at the very least, what am I saying? I'm saying that most of the ministry that happens in this church, we don't have a clue about. It's like there is ministry that people are doing all the time in this place. You know, this week... You probably just landed in a whole bunch of situations where people came and they shared stuff, whether it was your husband or your child or a friend. And what were you doing? Well, you weren't an uppercase C counsellor, but you were giving counsel, right, in those moments. What were you doing? Well, you were ministering to people. You were helping people to become like Christ. You were helping people to mature in an area that was a real struggle for them. Now, here's the thing. If I said to you this morning... I need you to preach next week. Or Dave Birding says, I need you to teach in Project Kids next week. Or Matt Martin says, I need you to start leading a community group. Or do a devotion for a group in the church. One of the first things that you would think, if someone asked you that, is do I have the time to prepare for that? But it's weird, right? Now, like you think about formal ministry, you think, do I have the time? And, but then when you think about informal ministry and how much of it is going on in the church... Sometimes we don't even think that much about preparing for that. It's kind of go, I'll just shoot from the hip. When someone's in need, I'll just shoot from the hip. And we don't, we're not always thoughtful about that. So let me ask you this. You found yourself in the middle of some pastoral situations this week. I know that because it would be the case with everyone. How'd you go with them? Maybe you found out that your kid got bullied found out that a friend was breaking up with their spouse, maybe you were talking to someone who's right in the middle of some conflict, what did you tell them? See, at the end of the day, we tend to pass on to others what's been most helpful to us. Which is why it's so critical that we personally engage in the change process that God wants for us. Because if you don't, you know what you do? is You kind of put on someone else a change process that, is not happening in you and it doesn't fit in as neatly with the scriptures. So I want to um, take a few moments here and I want you to be uh, a little bit thoughtful. So I think up the back there, just get my squint on there, some little pieces of paper and uh, there should be some pens up there too. So if you've got a pen, we're just going to do a school teacher thing. I can't help myself, I'm sorry. Um, just comes out of me every now and then. So this is going to be an all play. So you need a pen and a piece of paper. If you've got your own piece of paper, that's all good. If you've got your own pen, that's all good. Don't steal the pens that we hand out. All right? You'll, uh, you, know, you know what happens to people who steal pens from churches. So grab a piece of uh, paper. Matt's got the bits of paper there. I'm going to ask you three questions. right? Because here's, here's a big idea. You, in the last week... You operated out of a particular model of understanding people and the way that change happens. Okay, you just did. And what I just want you to do today, I'm going to give you three questions and I want you just to think about the model that you actually use. Now you're not going to be asked to share it, no one's going to grade you on this. Um, but I want you just to do a little bit of uh, reflection about the way that you actually view people and the change process and what's wrong with people. You don't have to write down the right answer. I'm really just asking you to write down what is true for you. Like, how do you actually uh, understand them? And I'll give you some, uh, some clarifying kind of examples as we go. Now, you know... There's probably not enough libraries in the world to fit all the books in that people have written about this. So all I'm asking you to do is write one sentence and if you just go, it's not very nuanced and someone could take it wrong, of course, it's just one sentence, all right? So don't, don't freak out about it. We'll just, 
we'll just get it down and um, get you just to have a look at the framework that you're currently using. That's really uh, what I'm asking. Here's the first question. Uh, and don't write down an answer just yet. Let's let me clarify this one. How would you describe the essence of what it means to be human? Let me give you a couple of examples. Some of you might have heard of a guy called Skinner. Uh, back in the day, about halfway through the 1900s, um, who uh, had something, uh, a theory called uh, behavioural therapy, uh, which is basically, behavioural therapy was that people are basically stimulus response machines. So you give someone a reward, they'll change. You give someone a punishment, they'll change in response to that. He actually saw people, I think, as essentially stimulus response machines. Richard Dawkins, you might be aware of, um, is an atheist... Um, scientist who actually uh, suggests, I think, that people are biological machines. So he doesn't think that morality exists, that good or evil or anything exists. It's just genes, hormones and DNA, basically. It's just chemicals. So if something bad happens to you, it's not a moral thing. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're unlucky. He thinks that people are biological machines. And there's even probably at a street level, there's even some people in um, the mental health kind of area that probably even think that a little bit. They kind of think if someone's really struggling with something, we've just got to find the medication that's going to make them okay. All right, so people are biological machines. We need to fix the biology, we fix the person. The last example I'll give you is probably the longest standing kind of therapy that's been kicking around and it's still going uh, at the moment and I think it's because it's pretty helpful. Um, it's got some significant drawbacks, I think, but I think it's... Uh, pretty helpful. It's cognitive behavioural therapy. It's really the idea, uh, people who, um, who love that and kind of see things through those kind of lenses kind of see people as essentially thinkers. People are thinkers and if you fix the thinking, you fix stuff. Alright? So let me go back to the question on the screen there. How would you describe the essence of what it means to be human? I'll give you a minute to, to write that down. So remember, I'm not asking you to write the right answer. This is about, like, what do you think? What's your functional model? Question number two. By the way, there's Mars bars for people who write little numbers and then put a footnote on their page. No, I'm kidding. Someone did that in the first service and then I went, oh, I don't have any Mars bars. What do you think is fundamentally wrong with people? What's wrong with humans in a sentence? So good luck with that. But anyway, just have a crack. Like, what do you actually think is wrong with people in a sentence? What drives the way that you approach them? Last question, and I'll uh, just give you a couple of examples before uh, you have a crack at this one. How does, uh, how does change happen? Here, let me give you a few examples. For some people, change, change happens because it's all about discipline. You need to be more disciplined, or you need to be less selfish, kind of grit your teeth kind of stuff. You, you have to try harder, you're just not trying hard enough. Sometimes in the church you can kind of get a theological kind of cognitive behavioural therapy which is kind of, some of you might have seen this and that's where you, you believe the right things about the Bible, you pray, you go to a small group and you make sure you go to a church that's got good Bible teaching and if you do all of those, you'll be okay, you'll be fine. Um, some churches, on the other hand, I think, in my view, from uh, an outsider's point of view, don't have a particularly nuanced understanding of how change happens. They just they pray for miracles all the time. It's like we need God to do a miraculous thing right now. God does do miraculous things, 
and we should ask God to do miraculous things, but there's a lot more going on in the scriptures about how change happens than simply or solely miraculous uh, acts of God. So one minute to write down how does change happen in your model. So just listen to the, think back and listen to the words that you would say to people that need change and what you're communicating to them about how they actually change. That will kind of tell you what you think about how change happens. Alright, who knows here that God can use anything to achieve his purposes? You know that, right? He can. Alright, so if you don't have a model that fits in really neatly with the scriptures, it's okay. Um, I mean, God would have you to get that model fitting more neatly with the scriptures. There's no question about that. But can God still use the help that you give to people even when it's not a completely neat fit? Absolutely. Here's the bottom line. And this might freak you out, but uh, the reality is, I think, that uh, at the project, we want to see change happen as fast as God wants it to happen. Is everyone happy with that? And uh, sometimes we can slow it down by being resistant to the kind of change that God's bringing in our lives, and sometimes the way that we help people can kind of slow it down. Let's just be a people who say, we'll, we'll do it as quickly as he wants to do it. And we know sometimes that's really quick, and sometimes it's like super slow. Um, and we'll just be patient, we'll wait, and we'll walk with him through that. We need to fit in with what he's up to. Let me run you through uh, some, just a, a quick sketch of how the project would answer those questions. The project sees uh, things uh, biblically as though uh, humans are essentially relational beings. We're made in relationship with God. Uh, the nature of the relationship is throughout human history, God's poured out his goodness towards humanity, and humanity responds to him in worship. Uh, and love toward him. That's the way that God's made it to work. What we think is fundamentally wrong with people um, is lots of stuff. And we live in a fallen world where there's lots of suffering that happens, but at the core level, all of the suffering in the world has actually come because people fors forsook God and worshipped other things. We've, we've loved, sacrificed, served, and obeyed something other than God. And then when we get in trouble, we go running to things that can't save us to save us. Even drugs and getting addicted to things, we go to those things to save us. So how does change happen? Change happens when humans are reoriented to who God is in Jesus in the midst of their deep heart struggles. You see, we believe that behaviour flows from the love and the worship of your heart. You are always worshipping and always loving something at the centre of who you are. And the beauty of it is that God hasn't come in with shock and awe, with a full frontal kind of military attack to exert his power over us, but he's come in graciously with us. He's come face to face with us in Christ dying on the cross and he's come in gently with us. And his, his desire is in the, the deep movements of our heart to actually have his grace and his kindness toward us actually applied onto the details of our lives in the moment. And that's why we keep talking about that stuff at the project. It's by the Spirit that the kindness of God leads us to repentance and to change, as Romans talks about. That's a quick summary. Point three, who brings about change? Well, here's the thing. In our culture, when someone gets stuck and we look at them and we go, you need to change, what do we think? The mental health professionals. And I'm not for a second saying that they can't help. I'm just saying that that's our default setting. It's like you get to a point where someone, you just go, you need to go and see a professional. So I'm not saying that they're not helpful. I have referred people to them, and I'm sure I will refer people to them in the future because some of the needs that people have in the church are beyond the resources, the experience, and the, and the expertise that the church has to be able to help them. But here's the bottom line. I don't think it's right for us to just go send them to the professionals because I think Paul's really clear in Ephesians 4. It's an all play. It's, it's your job, it's my job to serve each other and to minister to each other and to help each other. But you know what? We don't actually change anyone. 
at the end of the day. We're just the vehicle through which God brings about the change that he wants to bring about. And I want you to hear this from me this morning, that people's sanctification, their growth in maturity and being like Jesus is not a private matter in the church. I mean, you can't read Ephesians 4 and think that it's a private matter in the church, someone's growth to maturity. It's not an individual thing between someone and God. I mean, Paul Tripp's got a, uh, a teaching course that's called uh, Your Walk With God is a Community Project. It just is. You just can't read Ephesians 4 and think something different. So let me ask you this, a few questions. And I'm sure a lot of you already do this, but let me ask you. Where are you placing yourself in context where you can be transformed? Who really knows you? Like really knows you. Who is a contributor to areas of your life where change is needed? See, there's lots of ways to do this in the project. It's being in community groups. It's getting in redemption groups. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. There's lots of ways to do it. But you know what? You're never going to change the way that God wants you to change by being independent and on your own. And God has good things in store for you. So some of you might even just be going, I'm just going to stay private and individual. And I'll just say, okay, well, you're just going to be short of what God wants for you. And the sad thing is that some of you probably would just go, okay. And like not even having enough faith inside of you and trusting God to just go, he actually wants to lead me to somewhere good. But that's going to mean putting myself out there. All right, let me give you some closing tips. We live in a therapeutic culture, okay? Uh, and I want to just give you some tips uh, just to help you to kind of navigate things a little bit here. Uh, if you go to high-end kind of uh, mental health kind of academics and practitioners, uh, it's kind of a different variety of stuff to what you get when you get down to street level. All right? they, they tend to be a lot more open about the shortcomings and the, and the stuff that just probably is not working, the difficulties up there down at street level. It's like, oh, we've got the strategies that are going to fix just about everything. So you just, just hear me on that. I'm not, I'm not in any way bagging the guys at the top and the ladies at the top. But I am saying at the street level, which is where most of us operate at, it can get a bit murky and a bit difficult. And I just want to give you a couple of tips uh, going forward with that. Here's the first one. I just want to let you know, and most people don't know this, but prior to the mid to late 1800s, the jurisdiction over personal problems was almost solely the domain of the church. So in the late 1800s, what you actually had is a modern kind of psychology and psychiatry kind of kick up. And it developed over about 150 years up to where we are now. But before that, if you, had, if you were depressed, you'd go to the church. If you were anxious, you'd go to the church. That's where you'd get help. Now, I'm just telling you that because I think we need to claim some of that ground back. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that the psychology and psychiatry can't help. I'm just saying the church needs to claim some of that ground back. I mean, if you've heard of the Puritans and you know some of the... Uh, uh, fathers of the faith, you know, some of them got pretty depressed <laughs> and they had some pretty serious kind of struggles, emotional struggles. And what happened out of that? Well, they wrote stuff and they worked stuff through and they applied scripture to themselves. And so you have some of that beautiful kind of uh, layered kind of teaching that kind of comes out of some of those people. See, we just want to change that kind of mindset a little bit for us. It's like what you need if you've got troubles is you need a professional. There was a, a major Queensland denomination. <laughs> I'm not even going to mention them, but a major Queensland denomination got a very famous Christian counsellor in Queensland to stand up in front of all the pastors and he told them all that they shouldn't be doing any counselling. But that's the domain of the professionals. Now, I think you need to be wise and I don't think you just want to be a fool because I think there's a lot of really complex problems my vibe is I just go, well, let's skill up the pastors so that they can engage with that stuff a bit, not let's push it out to the professionals. I think it's sad. Do you know, I'll just say this. Do you know I think most of what 
psychological therapy is, is discipleship. That's, that's what it is. Now, it's, it's very skilled discipleship sometimes, but if you actually look at what actually happens with psychologists and counsellors when they're helping people, they're really discipling them. That's what, that's what they're doing. And I'm saying, let's, in the church, get really wise about how that we understand people and let's get really skilled at how the scriptures kind of intersect with people and let's be the people taking, over, taking back some of that discipleship ground that we've lost. That's really what I'm saying. Second tip. The Bible has an, an incredible way of uh, levelling the playing field. At the street level, people in our culture think probably this way, that some people have got a mental illness and some people don't. Some people are sick and some people aren't. But when you read the Bible, the Bible says that everyone is sick. <laughs> everyone's sick. Everyone's got a problem with their heart. Everyone's got a heart that's heading in the wrong direction. And I want you to know that some of the, the big guns in the psychiatry movement and psychology movement um, are kind of in line with the biblical idea. Listen to this from... Uh, this is Richard McNally, who's a uh, professor of psychology at Harvard University. Many mental illnesses occur on a continuum with no clear natural boundary between non-disorder and disorder. By intervening early, doctors can prevent a condition, condition from developing into a full-blown, potentially intractable disorder. If we wait before a mild condition reaches the severity of clinical significance, costs, let alone suffering, might be higher than they would otherwise have been. You see that? He's, he's kind of saying the DNA of garden variety anxiety is, is kind of got a similar DNA as this stuff up here. It's just that at some point in time we drew a line and we said that this is starting to affect the person's life, so now it's a mental illness. So you just want to look at that and you just want to go... You, you just, it, sometimes you can kind of get neutralised because you think, OK, so <laughs> this kind of anxiety, I get that, but this one's a whole different variety. And McNally's kind of going, no, it's not a different variety. It's a way more intense variety and a really difficult one. But it's the same kind of DNA or thread that's kind of running through the whole lot. I mean, McNally is, is a strong kind of advocate of the fact that the uh, current diagnostic system medicalizes everyday emotional life. That's, that's basically what he said. Now, this fits in really neatly with a biblical understanding, does it not? You know, it's, it's not like... All of a sudden, someone's got a, an anxiety disorder. It's like, no, well, probably everyone at some level deals with some kind of anxiety or fear. And we're going to see common threads that are going to run along that. And God says that all sinful anxiety is a problem. It doesn't matter whether it's not affecting your life that much. God's going, yeah, that, it is affecting you. All right, almost done. Three, a diagnosis is not an explanation. Di Mental health diagnoses are helpful in speeding up and working with people, but they're not explanations in and of themselves. So I'm sure that some of you would have had a conversation with someone, and I'm not in any way putting down people who are struggling with depression, but if you get diagnosed with depression, you don't have depression because you've got depression. Like Depression's a, a descriptor of what's going on for you. Does, it, does that make sense? So sometimes people will say things like that. They'll use a diagnosis as an explanation for why they're acting a particular way. When David Powlison made the comment uh, a while ago that I read, he said, like, when you think about disorders, and it happens quite a bit in the school here, uh, kids get diagnosed with a disorder. Well, what, well what's a disorder? Well, Powlison says a disorder is just a bunch of things that run together. <laughs> That's what it is. And all they're doing is trying to capture a bunch of things that are going on in the life of someone and kind of bundle them together. So what do you do when you hear a diagnosis? What do you do when someone says, I've got generalised anxiety disorder? How do you help them? Well, you get your Strong's Concordance out and you look up generalised anxiety disorder. And you don't find it there. So what do you do? Let me tell you what you do. You get them to tell you, you say, can you tell me what that's like for you? And they tell you what it's like, and they'll probably say some other kind of jargon words that you can't find in the Bible when they explain it to you. 
And then you go, can you tell me what all of those words mean? And do you know what you do? You just keep asking for more and more explanation until you find those words in Scripture. Does that make sense? Because you'll get it. And if you ask about generalised anxiety disorder, um, you say to someone, you say, can you tell me what that's like for you? Let's get outside of a diagnosis and let's deal with a person. Tell me what that's like for you. So then they tell you what it's like. I get really worried about stuff. You just go, oh, okay. So now I've got a bit more of an idea. I can think of a few other scriptures that talk about worry, that don't talk about anxiety, even though there's a couple of anxiety ones. And then they, they start, oh, tell me what that's like. What's, what's worry for you? How do, what does that look like? Oh, I get really scared about this. And then you start getting into fear and you say, oh, hang on. All of a sudden the biblical categories are increasing that, that this person is struggling with and the Bible actually starts to speak to um, where they're at. Ask them to define the terms that they've said until uh, the Bible maps onto it. Here's the last one. The one who understands best has the most influence. Have you ever listened to someone talk about a struggle that people have and they describe you so well that you felt like opening yourself up to them? This is just the law of the jungle, all right? I'm just telling you, this is the law of the jungle. If you understand people really, really well, you get authority in their life. And you don't even have to have a right explanation, but if you can kind of describe their experience really well, you get kind of some kind of opportunity to speak into their lives. Who's, who here has ever heard of uh, Gardner's Multiple Intelligences? You heard of that? That's like an educational thing. He came up with that, and there was no research basis for it. He came up with it, and he said, this is the way that it looks like it works. And it maps so well, everyone just kind of jumped on board with it. So on Friday, I'm sitting there listening to... Uh, Michael Nagel, who's a brain specialist, he's just going, Gardner's multiple intelligences is rubbish. It doesn't work that way, and the brain research shows that. All right? And so now there's research, but why did Gardner's multiple intelligences get a head start? I think it got a good head start because it described people and it mapped onto people pretty well. Now, I don't... Someone came up to me and they said, oh, I still think that Gardner's multiple intelligences work. That's not my point. I don't even have an opinion about whether they work or not. All right? All I'm saying is that it started and it mapped onto people well, so people jumped on board with it, and now people are starting to question it. It didn't necessarily come from a research base. We have to be better at understanding and describing people with the scriptures than others are. That's the challenge, right? We have to, we have to know, and I'm talking about all of us individually, we need to know and be able to understand other people really well and then be able to map God's truth onto them, speak the truth to them in love in a way that fits really well with them. So let me, um, let me finish this. If you've been around the project long enough, you'll know that we just do equipping and training stuff a lot. And that's really come out of Ephesians 4. We don't see the, the staff in the project as being people who have to make sure everyone's okay and growing to maturity. We see the staff as people who equip everyone in the church so that they can do ministry with one another. So how uh, would uh, I suggest that you engage, or what things would I suggest you engage with with regard to uh, training options if you want to get better at understanding people and the scriptures and how they intersect? Start off with uh, redemption groups, which is just about to get changed to... Uh, Restoration groups, all right? Just a great group process where a bunch of people get in a group together, have like three, two, two leaders and an apprentice, and, and basically what you've got is you've got people hanging out with Jesus and hanging out with the content of the redemption book and hanging out in community and being led in a way that helps people to walk alongside Jesus in all the aspects of their lives. Uh, you get the opportunity to experience change, uh, change that God wants to bring in your life and you'll also get the opportunity to look at uh, the leadership techniques of, uh, of the leaders there and, and how they're actually doing that. We've uh, just recently kicked off a, um, a course, it's kind of a two-year course, it's twice a term on a Thursday night um, which is called MOVE, uh, Pastoral Skills Leading to Gospel Change and that's really drilling down into uh, the Bible and working out what kind of if you can put it this way, what kind of moves do you need to make when someone's in need of help to be helpful to them and for God to do his work in their life? And so we'll be looking at the scriptures and we'll be looking at 
Uh, it's very kind of practically oriented. There'll be some assessment stuff in there, some reading, um, and um, so just some really good feedback mechanisms in that one. So there's a trial one uh, meeting of that if you want to get a sense of what that's about on the uh, 15th of June on a uh, Thursday night. Uh, this one's a bit of a new one. Um, it's probably, uh, I've just been thinking about the fact we probably just need something short that's just kind of going to give people biblical lenses, theoretically, for understanding how change happens in the Bible because people aren't always particularly clear about that. Uh, so that's kind of a partner to the, the practical version of MOVE. Uh, Mike Emlett is... Uh, from uh, CCF in Philadelphia, and he's coming out uh, to Australia. I'm uh, one of the directors of BCA in, uh, in Australia here, Biblical Counselling Australia. He's coming out. We're bringing him out on the, on the 2nd of August to do a uh, workshop in Brisbane, a one-day workshop on addictions and anxiety. He's a bit of an expert. He's a GP um, and uh, also got an MDiv and been counselling for a long time. He's kind of an OCD expert in there as well. Does a bunch of good stuff. He won't be doing it on that day, but does a bunch of good stuff I don't think he's doing it on that day. He does a bunch of good stuff on psychiatric medications and just understanding that uh, and their helpfulness and their limitations. Um, and then down in Sydney, there's a kind of two-day, two-and-a-half-day uh, intensive down there called Becoming Wise Counsellors, um, which is where you kind of get up close and personal with uh, the BCA kind of leadership team with Mike Amlett and a few other people doing some really sweet stuff. Um, in terms of helping others from a biblical gospel point of view. CCF study, if you haven't heard of CCF, just go and Google CCF, the Christian Counselling and Education Foundation. The, the study with them has just been transformative. If, um, for me personally, if you, you don't want to do any study, just crack onto there and look at their resources, search it on YouTube and just watch their stuff. Uh, you'll get skilled up there and um, just can't avoid that one. Read books. Okay, if you want to know some books to read, come and let me know and I'll help you out with it.